And uh, last week, we uh, we were in the last part of the last half or so of Genesis chapter 12. So before we read uh, the passage that we're going to look at today, beginning in 13, what did we talk about last week? Got you on the front row this time, Rick, so you got to behave now. <laughs> Us. Okay. He kind of made a mess of the situation, didn't he? He uh, he was uh, commissioned by God to be the bearer of blessing uh, to the lives that he touched, and in this particular situation, he really blew it and uh, and brought uh, quite a bit of distress to the household of Pharaoh. How did that happen? Okay. And uh, we talked about last week that he already planned it ahead of what he would do. But we don't think he really thought it was going to happen that way. Okay. Okay. The best laid plans of mice and men type of thing. Yeah. He he had it all figured out. He thought how he how he would uh, uh, protect himself uh, in uh, in that type of a situation and. Uh, and uh, he implemented his plan A, and it backfired on him, didn't it? So, and of course, that's never happened to any of us, has it? We, we've made a plan in the flesh and walked out, walked out in the flesh, and, and uh, of course, it always works out just exactly the way we planned, doesn't it? <laughs> so, what else? That was kind of closely related to your question: of, Do we always have to tell the whole truth in every situation? Yeah. What did we say about that? What did we decide? Um, or maybe I should ask, what did you decide? <laughs> I just wrote down what you had to say. <laughs> uh, he said, no, sometimes it is not appropriate, but, but destructive. Uh, but by what he does, and uh, there was, the, you have to consider the person mm-hmm. you're involved with. Yeah. Uh, he forfeited the opportunity to be a blessing. He imperiled his wife and he caused Pharaoh to enter into sin. Yeah. So that was definitely not. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Right yeah. So the gist of it was no, it's not always necessary to tell everything that we know in a given situation uh, and to withhold some information is not always deception, but clearly it was deception in. Uh, in uh, Abraham's case here, it was intended to deceive and ultimately we see the fruit of it was destructive in his own life, in the life of, of his wife and in Pharaoh's life. And, and uh, so clearly it was the wrong course of action to take. Why did he end up in this predicament? Okay. Because he didn't really... There's no evidence at all that he sought the Lord and in, in when he was confronted with the famine... Uh, there in the land of Canaan. Uh, he just uh, apparently just decided the thing to do was to get down to Egypt where there was apparently uh, food available. And, and so without any, without any evidence at all that he sought the Lord or sought the Lord's direction or had any direction from the Lord, he just goes down to Egypt. And, and what that 
really amounted to was, was well, in, in the first part, it was a failure on his part to seek the Lord, but it, but it really seems like it was a failure of faith on Abram's part to, uh, to trust God. God had made him a promise that he would provide for him. God had made a promise of the land. God had made a promise of his descendants. And God had made a promise that he would protect him and shield him from enemies and adversaries and things like that. And it seems that Abram just kind of lost sight of that. <laughs> and, uh, and losing sight of that, he makes these uh, very, very serious mistakes and he ends up down there. So one of the things we notice about this episode in Egypt that we looked at last week is that <clears throat> is that it, it, it's, the whole story just kind of happens without, without any real consideration uh, of the Lord or any consideration for God. God appears in the story, but that's kind of in spite of Abraham, <laughs> more, more so than because of Abraham. He appears to protect Abram. He watches over Abram. He sends a plague on Pharaoh's house uh, in order to protect Sarai and to protect Abram. Uh, but aside from that, uh, the Lord's just kind of out of the picture as far as Abram is concerned, for whatever reason. And that's in- encouraging to me, actually, as I mentioned last week. And I don't know about you, but 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 Abram is kind of you know he's he's kind of the the pinnacle. <laughs> you know, he's kind of the he's he's the uh, he's the prototype of faith. <laughs> and when we get to the New Testament, and and so it's encouraging to me to see that that the greatest men of faith in Scripture and the greatest men of God in Scripture had feet of clay. And the Scripture is very careful to always point that out to us or almost always point that out to us that they had feet of clay. And, and that's, uh, that's instructive on a couple levels. One, because it, it, uh, it reminds us of God's grace in our own lives and assures us of God's grace in our own lives, and it also demonstrates that when that that when God is doing something, it's really Him doing it. It's not us, and it's not because we're so good and so wonderful, but it's really because of His grace. Uh, so it's just encouraging to know that God can use us, even though we all have feet of clay and we make mistakes and we and we at times falter in faith and we fail to obey Him. Uh, that there's still hope, and we'll see some of that hope portrayed uh, in the lesson that we look at today. Anything else anybody wants to mention about this? Well, we, we talked about the fact that Abraham was uh, did something that turned out to be a curse to people around him. And, but I still think that from his perspective, he thought it was probably a pretty good deal still because he did it later. Now, maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's not really what happened or not. I, it's hard to say. Yeah. So from one perspective, you could say, yeah, this turned out pretty good. Uh, he didn't learn his lesson, did he? No. He <laughs> up with some extra yeah. goods and yeah. merchandise and so forth. Yeah. So uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, and we didn't talk about this. This is just real brief. For our society that worships youth, uh, for the women in here, I must point out that uh, Sarai was at least 65 years old and was still beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So women take it to heart. Yeah, you can still be beautiful despite our gold. That's right. <laughs> well, and we have to remember that she lived to be 127. So at this point, she was middle-aged. <laughs> she was middle-aged, and the commentators point out that she was basically kind of middle-aged at this point, although she was clearly past the point of bearing children. Uh, but that's the other thing: is she had not born children. And for those of you who have. Uh, you know, it, it uh, can uh, 
provide a little wear and tear on the <laughs> on the body, and Sarah has not gone through that yet. But uh, so, well, let's pick up the story then in chapter 13. Actually, the first couple verses of chapter 13 are really the conclusion of the Egyptian episode as he returns back from Egypt. And uh, uh, but we'll we'll go on in now into chapter 13 and uh, and read down. Uh, originally, my plan. Uh, was to uh, to go down through verse 13 today. Uh, but as I looked at the chapter this week and studied it, I thought I didn't really want to try to break it up. So I'd, I'd like to try, if we can, uh, to look at the entire chapter, all 18 verses today, because they really come as a unit. It's kind of all one story. And, uh, and I want you to notice that there are some real contrasts between this episode, this story, or this period of time in Abram's life and the one we're just coming out of. So there's a, there's a real contrast between this story in chapter 13 and the whole Egyptian episode. Okay, And so see if you pick up on some of those things as we read down uh, through the chapter. So beginning in uh, chapter 13, verse 1, again, as I said, this is kind of the conclusion of the previous episode. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot went with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and in gold. Actually, the word there is he was severely rich. It's an interesting choice of terms there. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Parasite Parasite, excuse me, were dwelling then in the land. That was a Freudian slip. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between your herdsmen, uh, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Forever, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, 
Walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Uh, one of the uh, let me get the right outline up here. I have last week's outline. This will help if I get today's outline. Uh, one of the things that you may notice as you go through uh, this episode here with uh, in chapter 13 with Abram is the contrast with the episode that we've just been through in Egypt. Because in the episode with Egypt, we start out with the story about the famine and then Abram just kind of goes down to Egypt and he does this thing and he, and he gets run out of Egypt by Pharaoh and he comes back, uh, comes back to the southern part of Canaan, which is the Negev. And as, a, as I mentioned before, there's no real mention of God or anything in it. With this episode, the thing that's interesting about the episode that we're looking at today is the whole episode is framed in worship. Did you notice that? Right at the beginning of the episode, beginning in, in, uh, in verse 4, we have Abram back at Bethel. And he's once again calling upon the name of the Lord in Bethel. Okay? And then we have the whole thing, the, the whole thing with Lot and, and uh, the, the interaction with Lot and the separation, etc. And then we have God coming and God speaking again uh, to Abram and God uh, elaborates on or expands upon the promise that he's made before. Okay? And, and then at the conclusion, we find Abram going back down to the Negev, back down to the southern part of Canaan, uh, to the area of Hebron, to the Oaks of Mamre. And, and we find him there and then he builds the third altar that we find him building uh, in Canaan. So he built three altars, one at Shechem, one at Bethel, and, and one here at Hebron. But he builds this altar there. And, and so this his worship at Bethel and his building of the altar and his worship at Shechem uh, they kind of frame this whole narrative that we're looking at today. Okay, so it's really a it's a it's really an uplifting passage, even in spite of the kind of ugly things that we encounter here with Lot, and we'll talk about that as we're going. But but even in spite of that, it's it's as far as Abram is concerned, it's a much more encouraging passage than the one we looked at last week. And uh, so, at any rate, he. He gets run out of Egypt because of, uh, because of the peril that he put Pharaoh and his household in. He gets run out of Egypt and he comes back to the Negev. And uh, one of the things I was thinking about last week is, or, or I mean this week as I was thinking on the passage was he went to Egypt because of a famine, right? And he got run out of Egypt. He didn't leave of his own volition. He didn't decide it was time to go back to Canaan. He got, he got run out of Egypt. And so it kind of... I was wondering yesterday as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, is the famine still going on? <laughs> you know, I just, uh, he doesn't say anything about the famine. Once he, once he comes back to Egypt, the famine is not an issue. Okay? And I think, you know, whether the famine was going on or not, I think the reason the famine is not an issue is not because now the famine was over or it wasn't over, we really don't know, but the reason the famine is no longer an issue in the story is because Abraham... Has his or Abram has his mind once again focused on the Lord. Okay, so he comes back, and when he comes back from Egypt, what does he come back with? Well, 
Okay, he comes back with a lot of wealth. He is severely wealthy. You know, some of us have been severely sick. Well, Abram is severely wealthy, okay? So, however wealthy he was when he went into Egypt, he comes back even more wealthy. And as uh, Jim was pointing out last week, it looked like he got, he got a pretty good deal out of this. And he didn't really seem to lose his lesson or learn his lesson. But, but the thing we did point out last week, the one thing he did lose is he did lose the opportunity to be a blessing bearer in Egypt because of his behavior. And so I think he lost a great deal. But materially, of course, he gained a great deal. That's actually, you know, pretty common, isn't it? It's very common for people to gain a great deal materially and lose a great deal spiritually. It's very common for Christians to, to because of compromise, because of a lack of faith or whatever, to gain a great deal materially. That's not to say that all material gain is, is wrong, but it is possible to gain materially and lose a great deal spiritually. And that's certainly what happened in Abram's case. Uh, but of course, Abram does gain a great deal materially when he is walking with the Lord. So uh, I think the lesson from that is material gain is not an evidence uh, necessarily of God's blessing or of God's disapproval uh, that we maybe should look to other areas to, to measure that or other ways of measuring that. But anyway, he comes back. He comes back extremely wealthy. What else does he come back with? comes back with Lot. Okay? Now, Lot's been out of the picture, right? We haven't heard anything about Lot since they left Haran. Okay? And, but now we're reminded that Lot's been with him through this whole thing. Okay? And uh, we talked uh, back when we were, t- we were talking about Lot back in Haran. When they left, we talked about why did Lot, why did Lot go with Abram? And there were a couple possibilities. I, I tended to give Lot the benefit of the doubt there. Uh, Mike was pointing out maybe, maybe his, he wanted to go with, uh, with Abram for some, some mercenary type of reasons that he really was hoping to get some cash out of the deal. And, and I think you'll see why, why uh, you might be inclined to think that. When we look at the story of Lot today, we're going to begin to understand that at least by this time in the story, Lot's priorities are getting a little messed up. Okay, so uh, so at any rate, he's coming back with Lot, and then I'm reminded that that means that Lot was in Egypt with Abram through this whole thing. That he went down to Egypt with Abram. That he was with Abram in Egypt. He was with Abram through this whole thing with Pharaoh. And then he comes back. And it's, it's interesting to think about. I, the Scripture doesn't really tell us and give us any indication. <clears throat> but I, I just had to ask myself as I was thinking about that, that Lot was with Abram during that whole time in Egypt, that I, that I wondered what was, the, what was the effect of Abram's decisions on the mind and the thinking and the attitudes of Lot. And when we, when we don't walk by faith in our life, it doesn't just affect us. It affects other people. And, and, I, and I just wonder if, if maybe Lot learned some things from the way he saw his uncle behaving in the whole sojourn into Egypt that kind of just reinforced maybe some tendencies that he already had in his life to think very materially and to think very superficially. Now, we do know, of course, as we said earlier, we do know that Lot was a righteous man. 
<clears throat> because Peter tells us quite explicitly that he was righteous and that he and that as he witnessed the wickedness around him, that his righteous soul was vexed day after day. Okay, So we know he was a righteous man. And yet we also see in this story of Lot that he's got his priorities all out of order and he makes some really rotten decisions and they have some really devastating results and impact on himself and on his family and on the future, uh, on all of history after that. Okay, So... So it is possible to be a Christian. It is possible to be a believer and have our priorities so out of order that, that we really have a devastating impact on those around us. Uh, quite the opposite of what God intends. Where, as we've mentioned before, He intends for us to be a, a blessing bearer. And, and, uh, and of course, Lot <clears throat> fails to do that in, in, in the choices that he makes. But at any rate, so he comes, Abram comes back with Lot he comes back to the Negev. And then he kind of, uh, because he is a nomad, he, he journeys around in, in the land of promise. He journeys around in the land of promise. Uh, he has no specific place, no particular place that's his property that he, can, that he can just say, this is my land, I own this. He only has the promise of God. But as he, as he moves around, eventually he comes to where? No. Bethel. Bethel. Yeah, Bethel. He comes to Bethel. Okay. Now, what's the significance of Bethel? Okay. He built an altar there. And I want you to notice that, that, uh, that Moses here, narrating the story for us, makes a point of reminding us. <laughs> he doesn't just simply say he came back to Bethel, but he makes a point of reminding us that when he was there before... He had built an altar there and he had called upon the name of the Lord. So, so he wants us to remember the significance of Bethel. Now, when we, uh, a couple, two or three weeks ago, whenever it was, we first uh, were looking at Abram's sojourn down into the land of promise. We noticed that he went to three places. He went to Shechem, he went to Bethel, and then he went to the Negev or to Hebron. Okay? And we talked about the significance of those three places. Do you remember what the significance of those three places are? Yes. Good. Okay. Shechem is the place of decision, the place of choosing. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You want to explain? I'm sure. No, that's it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Bethel was what? Okay, it was a place of meeting with God. It was a place of a uh, it was a place of a deeper relationship with God. He did, in fact, build an altar at Shechem. But when he comes to Bethel, his it seems that there's an there's an escalation of Abram's relationship with God because it's the first place that we encounter the idea that Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. Up to that time, it's been God speaking to Abram. Now we have at Bethel, we have Abram speaking to God. And then we looked also a little bit at the story of Jacob, which we'll look at in depth when we get to that in Genesis. But Jacob also has a couple experiences at Bethel in which his relationship with God is really deepened. And it's at Bethel that he goes... He goes this is more than just my dad's God. And this is more than just my grandfather's God. This is my God. Okay? And this happens uh, with Jacob at Bethel. So Bethel really represents a place where, 
where a person's relationship with God really becomes more deep and more personal and more intimate and more significant. Okay? And then the third place, uh, of course, was the Negev. And what was the significance of Hebron or the Negev in the life of Abraham and in our lives? The period of waiting on God. Okay? It's where we spend most of our Christian lives. Okay? It's in the land of promise, in the land of blessing, but having not yet received the promise. It's a land of just patient faithfully dwelling in the land. Okay? And Abram lives most of his time in the land of promise. He lives in the Negev around Hebron. Okay? And, and he lives there for 25 years before he begins to see the fulfillment of the promise. But he remains there, basically remains there, or that's kind of home base for him. Uh, it's, it's the place of faithfully dwelling in the land over the long haul. It's the, it's the being faithful in the mundaneness and the everydayness of life. Okay? And so that's the significance of those three places. So, so in coming back from Egypt, Abram comes back from Egypt. He comes to the Negev. He spends a little bit of time there and then he begins to sojourn around and eventually he ends up back at Bethel. And the narrator points out to us specifically that this is the place where he had first called upon the name of the Lord. This is the place where he had built the altar. And we find Abram back at Bethel. And once again it says, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we don't know why the first time when Abram came to Bethel, what was it that was going on in Abram's heart and in Abram's mind and in Abram's life that caused him to feel the need to call upon the Lord? Okay, Obviously something did. Nor do we know at this point, as he comes back to Bethel, why he feels this need. Maybe it's that he has this great promise from God and he's not seen it realized in his experience. And maybe, maybe that's what's driving him at that point to call upon the name of the Lord. We'll, we'll find it when we get to the story of Joseph. Uh, clear back at the back tail end of Genesis. When we, get, when we get to that story, we will discover that one of the greatest tests in the life of a believer is the promise of God. Are the things that God's told us He'll do. Now, we would think that that wouldn't be a test to us. That would be, you know, that's the promise. That's the thing that keeps us going through all the tests. You know, and the tests are... You know, or all the difficulties we face in life, and the problems that we face in life, and the illness, and the sickness, and the debt, and the and the you know, and the catastrophes, and the broken plumbing, and the you know, the kids that don't turn out right, and those are all the things that we think of are the tests. But Scripture points out to us in the life of Joseph that his greatest test was the Word of God that he had received, and I think one of the greatest tests in the life of Abraham is that he has a promise from God that's not being realized. And, and so maybe that's what causes him to come back to Bethel and call upon the name of the Lord. I, I don't know why he felt that need, but, but it is interesting that Abram comes back to Bethel. Now, when we talked about those three stages in the land of promise a couple of weeks ago, Shechem, Bethel, and the Negev, or Hebron, I pointed out that we spend most of our life at Hebron. We spend most of our life in the Negev and that... And that and that Bethel, you know, the Bethels in our life are pretty rare. They're, you know, what some people call the mountaintop experiences, you know, those, those 
times in our lives, maybe it was some conference or some camp you were at or some experience you had or some particular significant event in your life where you really encountered God on a particularly deep new level and you went, wow, this is pretty awesome, this walking with God stuff. And, 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 I, and this, is, this is what I, I want my life to be about. And, and you've had a Bethel in your life and they aren't very common, but they are critical. But the thing that's interesting that we learn from the life of Abram, and we'll see this in the life of, life of Jacob too, is that sometimes we have to return to Bethel. Sometimes we just got to go back there. When I was, uh, I was a kid, I grew up in a, in a Christian family. My, my parents both loved the Lord. My dad was for many years a pastor and, then, and was involved in lay ministry. And so I grew up in a Christian home and I knew the Lord and I loved the Lord. I got saved at an early age and, and, uh, and, and I loved the Lord and I, I wanted to, to please Him and all that sort of thing. But there came a point in my life where the Lord wanted to take me to a different level. Okay, I ended up uh, drafted during the Vietnam conflict. I ended up drafted into the army, and uh, and eventually ended up being sent to the island of Okinawa. Okay, which is a little island about 70 miles long, uh, south of the south of the main island of Japan, and and he stuck me there, and uh, and I, I really didn't like being there, and I wasn't really happy with God's plan on my life, <laughs> but. But he knew I needed a Bethel experience. Okay, and over the next two and a half years, while I lived there on the island of Okinawa, it's a year and a half in the military, and then another year as a civilian. Uh, in that time that I lived there, God just took me to a much deeper level of my relationship with Him. Uh, he used the ministry of the navigators in my life at that point, and I. And I just I began to really get into the scriptures at a level which I had never done before. Uh, I began to walk with the Lord in, in ways that I never had before. I began to see that this whole thing about God and everything was was more than just something you do in your life. It is really the central thing in your life. It's what your life is really about. And I began to really discover that. And over the course of that two and a half years that I was on Okinawa, you know, this was before the day of of uh, email and video Skype and all that sort of stuff, you know. So uh, most of my communication with my family was through letters. So I would write uh, fairly regularly, probably not regularly enough, but I thought fairly regularly, I would write letters back home. And because my parents were believers and they loved the Lord, I would often share with them in those letters the kinds of things that God was doing and God was teaching and developing in my life. I'm sure they were thrilled to read those things at the time. Well, I came back from this, came back, got out of service, came back to the States and, and uh, over a period of many years, and a lot of things happened. Uh, <clears throat> but there was a point in my life where things just started getting off track spiritually. I, it wasn't like I was uh, walking in overt sin or anything like that, but, but uh, things just weren't going well. And, and I was beginning to really have a real crisis in my relationship with God. And ended up really kind of in a, in a spirit of a, a period of what I've referred to as kind of a spiritual depression that lasted actually for several years. And, and, and a lot of it was precipitated by, by a lot of mistakes that I had made, and I couldn't understand why God let me make those mistakes. You know? And so I'm going, well, you know, is God really speaking to me? Do I really hear from God? How do, how do I know when I read the Bible that I'm really getting from God what He's trying to say to me? You know? And so I went really into this kind of just really 
time of spiritual disorientation and confusion and and uh, and other people were, you know, they were doing well and they were loving the Lord and everything. And I'm going, why doesn't God speak to me? And why doesn't God make things clear to me? And how do I know? Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I remember so vividly, uh, I've never put it in these terms before uh, until I was studying this lesson the last couple of weeks, but I thought, well, that, this is really what was happening. Was I had to go back to Bethel. I really needed to go back to Bethel. Now, Abraham, it looks like he just kind of wanders around and ends up back at Bethel. It's interesting in Jacob's life, when we study the story of Jacob, we'll see God specifically said to him, you need to go back to Bethel. Okay. Well, I needed to go back to Bethel. And fortunately, I didn't have to do it geographically. <laughs> okay. So, But I remember quite distinctly, uh, my dad had just, uh, my, my first uh, mother had died, and my dad had gotten remarried, and he was in the process of moving and everything. And so he was going through all the stuff you go through, you know, when you're, getting, when you're moving, you know, get rid of this, get rid of that type of thing. And he comes across this shoebox that was full of all these letters that I had written from, the, from Okinawa. And he says to me, he says, hey, Rick, you want these letters? And I went, oh, you know, okay. So I took them, and I took them home, and I set them in my house. And, and two or three months later, I remember it quite vividly. I thought, ah, oh, look at those letters. You know, I'm in this spiritual no man's land at the time. And I sat down on my couch in my living room, and I opened that box, and they're all in chronological order. And I pull out the very first letter, and I start to read it. And I put it, fold it up, put it back in the envelope, put it in the box and I pull out the second one. And as I start reading through these letters, I start going, wow, God really had His hand on my life. God was really speaking and working and doing things and He cared about me. And it wasn't because of anything in me. It was Him. He was doing it. And as I over the next few days, as I read through all of those letters, I remembered that walk with God and that fellowship with God. And I remembered how central He was and how much He cared and how much He initiated the action and how He was leading me step by step by step. And my faith was renewed and refreshed. And I still had a lot of really difficult, ugly stuff I had to go through in my life, but my whole perspective was changed because I had gone back to Bethel. And there are just times in our lives when we need to do that. There are times in our lives when we need to go, wait a minute, I need to go back to where God first got a hold of me, where He first laid hands on me, where I really knew that it was God. And I really knew that the, all the, the God of all the heavens and the earth was intimately involved in my life and He was my God. And we need at times to, to go back there and to think about that and to reflect on that. And I really think that one of the times we most need to do that is when we're coming out of Egypt when we've been to Egypt in our experience, when we've made some pretty serious mistakes and we've lost sight of the promises of God and we've lost sight of the blessings of God. And that's 
That's interestingly enough, that is when Abram comes back to Bethel. That also is, of course, when Jacob comes back to Bethel. It's after 20 years out in Haran. And then he comes back and he spends some time at Shechem because he's got to make some choices and some decisions. And then God says, now, Jacob, you need to go back to Bethel. And Jacob goes back to Bethel. And then he goes, oh, yeah, I remember what God did here the first time. And he's my God. And he kept every promise he made to me. And I owe him my life. So at any rate, Abram comes to Bethel. Well, now when he's at Bethel, then we have this kind of very strange and disappointing episode with Lot. Okay. <clears throat> because both these guys are just really now quite wealthy. Okay, Abraham, severely so. <laughs> I like that word. Uh, Abraham is so severely wealthy. And then there's Lot who's not doing bad himself. Okay, he's, he's got a lot of flocks and herds sheep and everything and he's got herdsmen and he's got tents okay and so god is blessing both these guys and both these guys are doing pretty good okay but there's a problem what's the problem okay the land can't support him what else okay okay their herdsmen are starting to argue okay and, and there's another problem. He just kind of makes a quick reference to it and goes on. The Canaanites and the Perizzites. <laughs> the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Okay, so there's these other people. They kind of like this land themselves, you know. They kind of think of it as their land. So you've got to be careful how big of a presence you make of yourself in their land or you're going to be in conflict, okay? Not just among yourselves, but with them. And so they're trying to be real discreet and diplomatic about, you know, these thousands of camels and horses and cattle and donkeys and sheep and everything, you know, and, and, and not trying to, you know, kind of just, you know, make enemies of all these people who kind of tend to think of the land as theirs, okay? And, and so they're, they're trying to do that, and, and so they're having this conflict over presumably grazing land and watering holes and that sort of thing. And the herdsmen start to argue and quarrel with each other. Okay? And so Abram says to Lot, he says, listen, we, we don't want this going on. Because see, Abram anticipates that if it starts with the herdsmen, it's going to end up where? With him and Lot, okay? He says, so, let us, so he says, don't let there be any quarreling between you and me. So, so he sees where this is going if he doesn't nip it in the bud, okay? So Lot, or excuse me, Abram makes a proposal to Lot, which is that they separate, okay? And he details how he suggests that this be done. Now, what strikes you about Abram's proposal here? Okay? Okay? He he wants peace in the family. So let's not we're brothers, he says. Let's don't, let's don't have this quarreling between us. And so he makes this offer. He says, any part of this land you can have. Okay? Now, Abram's been promised the land, right? Okay. And we're going to see here in a minute the extent of that promise, but he's been promised the land. But he says to Lot, he says, well, we need to separate. You know, this isn't going to work. We need to separate. 
You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. You can have any, any part of the land you want. Okay. What else strikes you about that offer? Okay. What's significant about that? Okay, but what is significant about Lot getting the first choice? Yeah, Abram's the patriarch here, folks. Remember, we're in a patriarchal culture. Okay, they call the shots. Okay, they get to dictate. And not only that, we can, as we glean from the passage as we move on, Lot, uh, Abram is also the spiritual one here. He's the one with the real spiritual insight, the one with the promises of God, and the one with the blessing. You know. And he defers to the younger. But didn't he break from that tradition when he left? <clears throat> well, he broke from his father, but he didn't really break from the tradition because all these patriarchal things still continue on through him and his sons. and so. so he maintains the cultural tradition. He, made a, he did make a break. And so in one sense, he, he broke. Uh, counterculturally, he broke, but he didn't break from the culture. Did that make sense, what I just said? Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so, so he's really the elder. And he should be the one who gets the preference, right? But he elects, he chooses to defer to Lot. Okay? Now, what strikes you about Lot's response to that? He takes it. Okay? Boy, y'all are hitting on good stuff here, but we'll take them one at a time, okay? The first one is, he takes it, and that was his mistake. Okay, it is true that Abram says, here, Lot, you choose. But Lot, if he had properly respected and honored his uncle, would have said, no, Abram, it's your choice. That would have been the spiritual response. That would have been the righteous response. We, in fact, see some examples of that in Scripture where, where someone offers a man of God, uh, makes a very gr- generous and gracious offer to a man of God. We're going to see an example in the life of Abraham here in a, in a couple of weeks or so. And we, we, uh, there's an example in the life of David where David has offered a piece of uh, property. He's offered uh, a, a place to offer sacrifices. And he's, it's offered to be given to him. And David says, no, I will not take that offer. Even though it's a very gracious offer, he declines it because he realizes there's a higher spiritual principle at work here. I think very clearly that the very first indication we get that there's a problem in Lot's priorities here is that he takes the offer. Okay. Now, there were three things came up here. Tom mentioned one. You mentioned two. What was the other one you mentioned? Well, he, he picked the choices. Okay, okay, his choice. Okay, he, he picks, he looks out, and he picks the best of the you know, the best of the land. Okay, what, what to him appears to be the best of the land. Okay, but Tom mentions something very important here, and that is that that it says he 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 looked up, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and he saw. Okay, but what is he looking with? Carnal eyes. He's looking with carnal eyes, isn't he? He didn't see the Sodom. Yeah, yeah. He didn't. He obviously didn't care, did he? Yeah. 
So he looks and he looks out and from and from Bethel, literally, you can look out and you can see the whole plain of the Jordan. You can see it from Bethel. And he looks out and it's a beautiful, lush place. And this is presumably before the Dead Sea is there. Okay, Uh, so he looks out and he sees this beautiful place and he sees as far as Zor. Okay, Zor is a little we're going to just read some more about Zor later on in Genesis, but it's a little small, it calls it a city, but it's really just a kind of a small town or whatever at the very southern end of what is now the Dead Sea. It's right at the very tip of the Dead Sea. So it's down to the very southern end of the valley. Okay. And as far as Zor, he looks and he sees and, and, and it's just, oh, it's, like the, it's like the garden of God. It's just lush. It's beautiful. It's green. And he looks with carnal eyes. He looks with external vision. And all he can see is opportunity and dollar signs. That's all he can see. Okay. Now, what's interesting is after they separate, that God says to Abram, he says, I want you to lift up your eyes and look. And Abram lifts up his eyes and looks. And he looks to the east and to the west and the north and the south. And... And he sees all this land that God's going to give him. And the difference is that Abram was looking with eyes of faith. Whereas Lot is looking simply with carnal eyes or fleshly eyes. And so he looks and he sees and he ignores the fact that Sodom is there. Okay? There's no consideration of that. And so it's interesting. It says that he chooses to go there He chooses to go to the valley of the Jordan, to the plain of the Jordan. He goes and it says he journeys to the east. Okay. Now, when you see that, the alarm bell should go off. Okay. We've talked about this before. Several times already in Genesis. This is now the fourth time that when somebody is journeying to the east, it's a metaphor for walking away from the presence and the blessing of God. It started with the Garden of Eden, remember? The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden and they're driven out to the east. Okay. The next time we encounter it is we encounter it with Cain. When Cain is under the judgment and the punishment of God, he journeys to the east. The third time we encountered the expression uh, was after the flood, the descendants of Noah, and they migrated to the east. Okay. Ended up eventually at Babel and building the Tower of Babel. So, So in Genesis, this idea of moving to the east is a metaphor. I mean, it actually really happened, but in addition to it having really happened, it serves as a metaphor. It serves uh, as as an allegory to us, if you will, of moving away from the presence of God and moving away from the blessing of God. Okay, And so here we have in the life of Lot, he has looked, he has seen what provides for him the promise of great material success, a great step for his career, if you will, without any consideration for the peril that he's going to put his family in. And as we move on through the story in Genesis and we come back to Lot eventually, we will discover that Lot pays a terrible price for these choices that he makes. And he actually loses part of his family to Sodom because 
He placed his career over principle. And he placed his career over the spiritual value of staying in the land of promise. Okay. Now, clearly, he couldn't stay with Abram. And, and so this whole circumstance comes about and, Abram, and they separate. And it says, it says that Abram lived in Canaan and Lot, it says, lived among the cities of the plain and eventually pitched his tent near Sodom. And that's the last we see of him in this episode. But when we get to the next episode, we're going to find out that he's actually living in Sodom. And when we get to a later episode, we'll find out he's not only living in Sodom, but he's now living in a house. He's not in a tent anymore. He's in a house in Sodom. Okay. <clears throat> so there's a progression that goes on, remember, in the life of a righteous man. Okay. The guy still has some things that he thinks are important, but not important enough to sacrifice his career for him. And the cost is a tremendous cost to his family. And he loses his sons and he loses his sons-in-law to the lust and the sin of Sodom and his wife. And there's a real message there for us, isn't there? Uh, you know, how many, how many Christian men and women, people who name the name of Christ, people who go to church every Sunday, people who really are saved, have placed their career or their material well-being above the well-being of their families and their children? And how many times have their children paid the price for the folly of you and I as parents who have made decisions based on external values rather than eternal values. Well, what's interesting then is that after Abram and Lot separate, that God now speaks again to Abram and He once again states the promise. But as He does each time, he gives Abram a little bit more information about the promise. Okay, So now, he says to Abram, he says, you know, the first time when he promised him the land, when he was standing there at Shechem, he just said, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. Very simple, straightforward. But the extent of it isn't clear. Okay, Now he gives to Abram some of the understanding of the extent of the land. He says, stand here at Bethel, which is a fairly high elevation. He says, as far as you can look, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, this land is all going to be yours. And he begins to give him some sense of the extent of the land. Now, there's one thing I want to point out to you about that. He's standing at Bethel, which is the exact same place where Lot was standing. And Lot looked out and saw the plains of the Jordan and decided that's what he wanted. Now, Abram is standing there in the same spot and he's looking out and he's looking to the north and to the south and to the west and to the east. And the land that Lot looked at and he said, I want that land. Now Abram is standing in the same place and God is saying, I will give that land to you. You see, that's why Abram could make the offer he could make to Lot. 
That's why, that's why Abram could make the offer and just say, Lot, you just you pick any place. Because Abram understood that nobody stood in the way of the promise of God in his life. So it didn't matter where Lot went. If Lot picked this plot or that plot or whatever, it didn't matter to Abram because Abram knew that he didn't need to be jealous and he didn't need to grasp and he didn't need to cling because he knew God would give him this promise. And so he could stand there and he could look out on the plains of the Jordan and he could realize, that will be mine too. Yeah, Lot's gone there and he's claimed it and he thinks it's his, but it's mine because God has given it to me. And, 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 and how many times in our life, because we forget the promises of God, do we feel compelled to grasp and to cling? And how many times do we feel jealous or envious when somebody else seems to have the blessing that we think ought to be ours? But if we really have confidence in the promises and the goodness of God, we don't have to worry about what God gives to others. And we don't have to worry about the blessings that God bestows upon others. And we don't have to worry about the choices that others make with their lives because ultimately God's promises to us stand. Right? And then he says to Abram, he says, and I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, your descendants can be numbered. And now, the, now it begins to... The scope of it begins to dawn on Abram. Okay, before he's just simply said, "I will make of you a great nation." He didn't really elaborate on that. Then he says uh, at Shechem, he tells him that he's going to have descendants, and that's kind of a you know disjoint. You know, where does this fit in in Abram's mind? Okay, now he says, not only are you going to have descendants, but your descendants are going to be innumerable. Well, then we begin to understand why it was necessary. For Lot and Abram to separate. Because Abram needed to be diminished. You see, when this whole thing is going on with he and Lot and his, his herdsmen are arguing and stuff, you know what would be going on in my mind if I were Abram? I would be thinking, wait a minute. God's promising me a bunch of descendants and God's promising me all this land, but there's not even enough land here for for me and my nephew to get along. And 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 so God has to God has to separate Abram and Lot. He actually Abram is actually Abram's household here is diminishing. It's getting smaller, it's not getting bigger. But what's interesting here in the way that the way that Moses records the story for us is that he is that he he closely links together God's speaking and Lot's separation. Did you notice that? He says the Lord spoke to him after Lot separated. Abram had to feel that that diminishing effect on his household before God could come to him and restate the promise to him. Sometimes that has to happen in our life, doesn't it? 
you know, a, a, a good example, another illustration of that is the whole story of Gideon in the book of Judges, right? <laughs> Where he had this great army and God had to whittle it down. They started out with 10,000 or something like that and they ended up with 300 guys. They had to whittle him down until he could trust God. And that's what God is doing with Abraham. I think there's another reason that they had to separate. And I think that's because Lot's values were not Abram's values. And Lot could not, or Abram could not follow God and walk with God and sojourn with God if he had a guy who had other values looking over his shoulder, quibbling with every decision he made. There was a point in which they had to separate so that Abram could follow God without his nephew going, well, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. And so then God says to Abram, he says, I want you to get up. I want you to walk through the land. Now, that's more than just kind of a tour. What he's actually telling Abram to do is to lay claim to the land. This is oftentimes what kings and generals and people would do if they were claiming a piece of property or a land or a city or whatever. They would circumnavigate it. They would walk around it. And they're walking around it was laying claim to it. And so that's what God is telling Abram to do. He's saying, this is not just a promise. I want you to get out there and I want you to walk through it and actually lay claim to this land. And so Abram does. So now he has this fantastic promise of descendants like the dust of the earth, innumerable in number, and a promise of land as far as he could see, that now after he's obeyed God, and he's, his, the sole of his feet has actually stepped on this land. And where does he go? He goes back to Hebron. He goes back to the Oaks of Mamre. And he sets up residence there. Why? Because that's where we spend most of our life. We spend most of our life dwelling in the land, cultivating faithfulness. And Abram will spend most of his life there at Hebron, waiting on the promise of God, and trusting God and trying to figure out how is this promise going to be realized. And so at the close of this episode, we find this stark contrast. We find Abram living faithfully in the land of promise at Hebron and Lot living by the dictates of the flesh and by just these superficial material judgments in the land of Sodom or in the, in, in the neighborhood of Sodom. In the, in the plain of the Jordan. And it's the, contra- it's the contrast that is instructive for us in our lives. Where, you know, after we leave Bethel, where will we spend our lives? Will we spend our lives living in the land, faithfully waiting and trusting in the promises of God? Or will we just kind of forget all that and just go, this is my opportunity, this is my chance? and end up finding ourselves living on the plains of the Jordan. Okay? Okay, next week we'll go on. We'll get into the War of the Kings next week.